please take your Bibles. Yes, that would be wonderful, thank you. Please take your Bibles and go to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 20, if you're visiting with us or left your cell phone at home. <laughs> um, go take, pull that black Bible out in the chair in front of you. Pull that black Bible out. Go to the back of that black Bible and find page 17. Page 17 in that black Bible, Matthew chapter 20. 20 verse 17 is where, where we will begin. 2017. Matthew 20, verse 17. We'll go to verse 28. 17 through 28 this morning. I will read the passage first. Chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 17. Oh, yes. Excuse me one moment. Thank you. Travis and going up to Jerusalem Jesus took the twelve aside by themselves and on the way he said to them look we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be scourged and to be crucified And on the third day, he will be raised. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee with her sons came to him, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, command that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your kingdom. But answering, Jesus said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. I just think that's funny. Um, I'll tell you why in a little bit. He said to them, My cup you will drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but to the ones whom been prepared by my father. Well, hearing this, the ten became angry with the two brothers. But calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And great men exercise authority over them. Not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Quote, no, humble narcissism is not an oxymoron. It's a combination of qualities that the best leaders and companies have. Organizational psychologist Adam Grant explains why. Well, if it's an organizational psychologist, it's got to be true. That's sarcasm. Humble narcissism, the, the title of the article was Tapping into the Power of Humble Narcissism. Yes, that's right. You heard me right. Humble narcissism. Uh, Definition of narcissism. um, The pursuit of gratification from vanity or egotistic admiration of one's idealized self-image and attributes, 
self-flattery, perfectionism, and arrogance. It actually comes from the Greek word from the Greek god, Narcissus, who is enamored with himself when he would look at himself. That's where the word comes from, narcissism. So anyways, this is, this is an article. I mean, I, if you type in, uh, I think, what did I type in on the Google search? Uh, maybe humility or humble, or something like that. And this article came up, I was laughing. This, it, it, uh, this, uh, it goes on. How can you be narcissistic and humble at the same time? The two qualities sound like opposites. But they go hand in hand. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's really here. Narcissists believe they're special and superior. Oh, really? Humble leaders know they're fallible and flawed. Humble narcissists bring the best of both worlds. They have bold visions, but they're also willing to acknowledge their weaknesses and learn from their mistakes. So don't you want to be a humble narcissist now? For example, um, hey, did you know I'm so awesome, but I'm humble about it? See? I'm a humble narcissist. Perfect. Right? I know, I'm being facetious. I just think this isn't funny. But anyways, there's a point to why I'm saying this. Our world will do anything but uphold humility, even though they actually crave it from people. They look down upon people who are humble even though they actually crave it and actually they honor it. And you definitely don't want to be humble because you're, supposed, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to, uh, what do they say? Sell yourself. And yet humility is truly the essence of Christianity. It's actually the first step to becoming a Christian. You humble yourself like a child. Remember chapter 18? To be a follower of Jesus, you humble yourself. And and we do that as a response to the gospel because that's what our king did for us. Matthew's driving home theme bow down and worship Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and yet he, there's the, the, the spin on it is this, he's the king who came to serve. What king do you know serves his subjects? That, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't go together. A king serves? No, no, no. A king is served. Not so with our king. He's the king who came to serve us by saving us from our lack of servanthood and for our selfishness. He paid the ransom for our sin we are called to trust him and to emulate this kingdom value. What's the kingdom value? To be great, we're called to serve. To be first, we're called to slavery. That's the king we worship. That's the king we serve. And yet, he's the one who initiated it. He serves us. He served many He was our ransom. This is how gospel truth, the Bible, 
stands out over every religion in the world, especially Islam. Stark contrast. It's blasphemous to a Muslim to think of God becoming humanity. And yes, that's the very essence of what we believe. It's the very essence of the truth. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. Jesus the King came to serve and give his life as a ransom on behalf of us. He is the ultimate servant and the greatest slave which is the display of the main value of his kingdom. And in our world, in our culture, in our community, we as a church should be known as those who serve each other. Uh, We should strive, even fight, to outserve one another. Although it's not about a territory. This is my territory. This is where I serve. Don't you, don't you get involved in this? No, we're serving each other in love. We're serving one another in love. It's so interesting, just the stark contrast with what you see here with Jesus and, and his disciples. Jesus, here Jesus is in the disciples and even the, the rich young man, remember that rich young man in chapter 19? Such stark contrasts. And Jesus foretold his death for the third time and then teaches, I should remind his disciples about the values of the kingdom. What are the values of the kingdom? Humility. Lowliness. Sacrifice. Jesus, by his substitutionary, vicarious death, is the ultimate example of what God's kingdom is all about and how to get into that kingdom. You trust the one who displayed lowliness, humility, and sacrifice by giving his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us. Vile sinners vile rebels you humble yourself like a child and you come this is the essence of the gospel this is should be central to everything we do as a church for you as an individual christian here's the values of the kingdom humility lowliness sacrifice displayed in the very son of god so let's unpack this, verses 17 to 28. First, first point here, how he served, verses 17 through 19. The third prediction of his death. Going up to Jerusalem, probably a crowd of people with Jesus and his disciples, not just him and his disciples going. They're making their way to Jerusalem and as they're going about It says, he pulled the 12 aside by themselves privately to give them a vital truth, to remind them of a vital truth. And by the way, this is the lengthiest prediction of Jesus' passion out of the four that he gave. 
Notice verse 18. Look, or behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, his favorite designation of himself, which actually points him being the Messiah. He'll be delivered or technically um, betrayed to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Notice how Jesus expressed exact knowledge of what would happen to him. His humility, loneliness, suffering, sacrifice, and horrible death. He knew exactly what was going to happen. They would condemn him to death. This is added, different from the other predictions. The religious authorities of Jerusalem they would be the ones to condemn him to death, but notice he says, since they can't be the ones to actually kill him, they will, from verse 19, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will carry out the killing of Jesus, again, added from different predictions that he's made, to be mocked, to be scourged, flogged, or whipped, and third, to be crucified, which is only in Matthew's gospel, and the first time Jesus mentioned how he would be killed. Crucifixion was done by the Romans. And for the Jews, if someone was, was crucified, it indicated that God had cursed that person. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, for criminals, and others who were despised. So Jesus would truly identify as a criminal or as a sinner. With this kind of humiliation, suffering, earthly glory was gone. It wasn't about earthly glory for Jesus. And yet notice the very end of verse 19. And on the third day he will be raised. All three passion, first three passion predictions end with Jesus being raised, an action done to him, notice. He will be raised. Someone is going to be doing the raising, which is central to the gospel message, the resurrection of Jesus, this action whereby freedom and liberation is guaranteed because he's resurrected. He would die for sinners and yet he'd be raised that so the father would vindicate his son and show that he was satisfied with that atonement. So this, this is how he would serve us. By becoming a sinner himself. Your king serves you by becoming a criminal on behalf of you. Your king serves you by taking on your sin. He puts it upon himself so you can be declared not guilty? No. Innocent? No. Righteous. You're declared righteous in his sight. And then you have verses 20 through 25. Here you see Jesus' action for sinners with his prediction of the great suffering he would face is juxtaposed to the disciples' selfish grab for glory and honor with prideful arrogance. Such stark contrast. Here you have Jesus' knowledge of the future, his determination to do the Father's will, 
um, his self-sacrificial humility versus the disciples' ignorance, their arrogant confidence, and their self-seeking pride. We're not like that. Dumb disciples, whatever. They failed to listen to their master. They did not understand. Once again, Jesus needed to teach his disciples about kingdom greatness and kingdom values. He did that in chapter 12, he did that in chapter 15, he did that in chapter 18. Interesting, too, um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, just like what, four chapters ago? Remember the Canaanite mother who asked for Jesus to heal her daughter? Talk about contrast. Even the contrast, Jesus in chapter 18 just taught the disciples to be humble like a child and uh, it kind of went right over their heads. Kingdom greatness means we follow our king who gave his life and sacrificial service to save others. The path we walk is a path of sacrificial sh- service for each other, just like Christ our Savior. As is what we just sang about. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Uh, his mercy's more. So we, we sing, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. I mean, we act like you. This is how he served, and now we're moving into, this is why we need his service. <laughs> this is why we need him to serve us. Verses 20 through 25, notice what happens. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee with her sons came to him, bowing down and making a request of him. Uh, now either she spoke up for her sons, or they initiated her to speak on their behalf. Hey, Ma, go talk to Jesus. Either way, none of them understood what exactly they were asking for. Uh, 21, he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, command that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right, one on your left in your kingdom. Sitting on the right and left denotes the proximity to a king's prestige and authority in ruling the kingdom. That's how one writer put it. In other words, they, these were the two highest places of honor next to the ruler of the kingdom. They wanted the highest honor. That's what they wanted. What a contrast to Jesus' suffering and death. That he just mentioned in verses 17 through 19. Well, let's look on the bright side. At least they believed that Jesus was the Messiah who had reigned in his kingdom. Huh? Well, that's good. The bad part is they didn't understand he must suffer first. Unfortunately, they were more concerned about their glory than Jesus' coming suffering. And this is the loneliness of Christ's passion. Jesus would suffer alone because one disciple would betray him and the rest of them would 
bail on him. You know, it's shocking to see their complete insensitivity to their master. Verse 22. But answering Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Now we're unsure if Jesus was addressing just the sons or, or, or the mother and the sons. But they had no idea what this entailed, not to mention the complete inappropriateness of this request. I'm sorry. Did you not hear what I just said about me predicting my death and my suffering that was going to be mocked, scourged, and crucified? Maybe you didn't hear me say that. And then this... Are you able to drink the keep that I'm able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, We're able. <clears throat> of course we are. Are you able to suffer in the same way that I'm about to suffer? See, a cup was a metaphor for suffering. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for drinking the cup of God's wrath. So when Jesus says in the garden, Let this cup pass from me. The cup he knew he was going to drink was the cup of God's wrath. Are you able to to suffer in the same way that I'm about to suffer? What I just said a minute ago. God's kingdom meant suffering, lowliness, rejection, sacrifice in this world. Not glory, gold, glamour, power, prestige, or position. Those are the things that our world glamorizes. Those are the things that our world makes important. If you got the glory, you got the gold, you got the glamour, if you have the power, if you have the prestige, if you have the position, that's what you're supposed to go after. They said to him, We are able. Really? No clarification, no explanation, no hesitation, no aversion, just brash audacity. (laughs) Of course we're able. Don't be stupid, Jesus. We can drink the cup. They truly had no idea what they were saying. You know what they probably thought he was saying? The cup. He owned his kingdom. You know, the gold cup that has all the rubies around it. Here, James, take a drink of this. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Here, John, take a drink of this. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Of course we can drink that cup. That's what they thought. Probably. They thought it was about glory. Guess what, boys? He said to them, verse 23, Oh, yeah. My cup you will drink. You will drink the cup of suffering with me. You 12 disciples with Judas, you 11, you have no idea what you're going to face. You, James and John, have no idea what you're going to face. As a matter of fact, in just a few short years, James would be beheaded. 
done. John, he lived till he was 90-something years old, and yet he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He wasn't a plush in the nice assisted living home, getting his food fed and taking care of No, he was exiled to an island. That's what happened to John. My cup you will drink, but to sit on my right and left, this is not mine to give, but to those that's been prepared by my father. He didn't promise them the best seats in the kingdom because it's not his to give. My father has prepared who would take those positions of honorable authority. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly who his father was. He knew exactly what was going to happen and yet he said in reference to this, these positions of authority, that's not mine to give. My father will do this. And yet you guys... What are you guys thinking? Well, notice what happens. Verse 24. The ten got wind of this, and they got ticked off. Hearing this, the ten became angry with the two brothers for asking the question, why? Most likely because they were jealous. Hey, we wanted to ask Jesus that question. You two brothers beat us to it. Oh, we wanted to do that, yeah. That's what they were doing. That's why they got mad. Because they wanted to ask the question. They wanted to be in those seats. You just see Jesus, verse 25. Calling them to himself. Pull them aside again for another lesson. Listen to teacher. Let me teach you. No, remind you. The kingdom values. No, first... What are not kingdom values? Notice what are not kingdom values. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and great men exercise over them. Gentile rulers, they lord it over their subjects, they exercise it, they, they grab after authoritative positions and then they lord it over their subjects. World rulers go after positions of authority to tyrannize their subjects with a rod of iron. Our culture defines greatness as having prestige, power, position, glamour, glory, gold. You're supposed to sell yourself, you're supposed to be on top, you're supposed to be the best. But make sure there's, it's humble narcissism, not full narcissism, right? I mean, just make, make sure you have that adjective there. Don't be just a narcissist. Be a humble narcissist. But narcissism is okay. Now, not everyone, but many who are in power abuse their power. That's the great temptation. And in our culture, it's about positioning yourself. This is why we need our king to serve us because this is our bent. We're bent towards positioning ourselves. We're bent towards seeking out the glamour for ourselves. This is what we're bent on. But notice what Jesus does here, verse 26 and 27. Here's the kingdom value. The great, your servant. First, 
to be a slave. Not so among you. But whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Jesus turned everything on its head. This is anti-culture. Jesus, even Christianity, turns our culture on its head. Jesus and his kingdom does the exact opposite. To be great means you're a servant. To be first, you're a slave. We follow the example of Jesus himself by first serving each other. That's the main value of the kingdom. Jesus' followers are the exact opposite to our world. Jesus' followers live the exact opposite to our world and to its culture. To have eminence in God's kingdom is to walk the path of lowliness, humility, self-sacrifice and service, even a slave. As one writer said, quote, to serve is to reign. To serve is to reign. Which in politics is an absolute no-no. You don't do that. It's a sign of weakness. A frailty. Not greatness. But as Christians, the way up is down. The way forward is lowliness and service. And Jesus commands us to follow his very example. We serve each other in love. We may have all the right truth but if we don't have loving service, then merely having just the truth means nothing. In the book of Revelation, the seven churches, Ephesus had the truth. They were rock solid on truth. But then Jesus says this, but this I have against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost what it means to be loving. You've lost what it means to serve each other in love. You've lost it. That's why we come as children. Children have no status. They have nothing necessarily to offer, especially in the first century. We come with humility and we welcome each other, ready to serve. And then Jesus ends, the same way he began this section, how he served, again, how he served. Or really, the kingdom value is shown, verse 28, just as, in the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, the powerful, authoritative king, the God of heaven, who upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter one, 
He came to serve humans, to serve his creation, to serve us. And Jesus not only showed it by his supreme example of sacrificial servanthood, his sacrifice would be the very action that would ransom many, his people, from their sins. That's how he served us. He paid the price. to give his life a ransom for many. World rulers flaunt their position. Christ, who should be served, being the perfect, righteous, just, holy God, he should be served. Remember just a few, uh, it was chapter 17, a couple chapters, two, three chapters before, the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw his glory. And yet he came to serve us by giving his life as a ransom on behalf of his people for many, not for all, for his people. The word ransom, it means derived, it's derived from uh, practices of warfare. Ransom means you would, there would be a price that would be paid to bring back a prisoner of war, a POW, out of captivity. It was how to free a slave. You would pay the ransom. You would pay that price. The word therefore is the Greek word anti, which is a normal word for substitution. So he paid the ransom price as a substitute. This is what we call a vicarious substitutionary atonement or vicarious substitutionary redemption. Jesus substituted his own life for his people, for the elect. He would shed his blood to pay the ransom so that we may be set free instead of facing God's wrath, which is eternity and hell, we get mercy. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's what you receive because he pays the ransom. Have you come to the place where you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you come to the place where you embrace Christ to be your Lord? Or you've turned from your sin, you've trusted Jesus, he's paid the ransom, you must believe that he did that for you. Jesus, I trust that you paid for my sin, so I put all my trust in you and what you've done, and that my sin is paid for, and until my sins are many, your mercy is more. Save me, and he will. He'll save you. That's the gospel. He would give his life, his soul, as a ransom price in the place of sinners. He freed them from slavery to sin. See, our our root problem It's not political, not social, not even psychological. Our root problem is spiritual, affecting all the other areas because it's a sin problem. And Jesus not only saves sinners by his very gift of his life, he's also the example of how we're called to interact with each other. As his body, 
as his church, as his people. Christians, followers of Jesus, should be the most gracious people around because of how much grace God has shown them in his son. People should know that about us. They should sense that from us as we interact with each other, as we're conversing, as we're communing. When conflict arises, we're ready to show each other mercy and grace. We should be known that way. We should be known that way here in our community, the Verde Valley. Common Bible Church, those people they're, 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 just, they're really kind to each other. They're just, they're just gracious to each other. They're so gentle with each other. We should be known like that. Jesus the King came to serve and give his life as a ransom on behalf of us. He is the ultimate servant and the greatest slave. Which, that's the main value of the kingdom. So we're called to trust him and to emulate this kingdom value. If you want to be great, called to serve. You want to be first, called to slavery. That's the value of the kingdom. That is the main value of the kingdom. Why? Because he's the king who came to serve us by saving us from our lack of servanthood and save us for our selfishness. He paid the ransom for our sin because he's the king who came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve you, to save you, and to change you so we can be a people who serve each other. So we're displaying Jesus to the world. Help us, Father, by your spirit, effect that change in us as a church. That our whole focus and mindset is how we can outserve each other. Not as a territorial thing, because we want to serve each other in love and then work together to be a gospel centered church. Father, thank you that your mercy is so much more than our sin. Reminded of this gospel truth this morning. So that's why we say with humility, that's why we say with such brokenness, take my life. I'm determined to follow you Because you, mighty king, you've served me. God, serve me? Aren't we supposed to serve God? Aren't we supposed to serve you, O God? And yet you've served us. Vile rebels. May this gospel truth Oh, Lord, may it so change us. Mm.
It so changes. I want to encourage you at this time we like to take some time just to have a moment of silence and it's done on purpose so you can have time where you can just reflect ponder think mull through the truths of God's word maybe looking through your notes maybe there's a statement in there you wrote down just wow that just it just nailed you whatever to think, to ponder, to let your heart relish in this gospel truth. In just a few moments, and you know, we worship with our giving, which we should worship in that. We worship singing, praying. We do those things, of course. But also worshiping, pondering, thinking, what's known as meditating. Fill your mind with truth. Take these few moments and do that, please.